The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's the only place outside of a Guns N' Roses tour bus to get the world-renowned, much-anticipated Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho. Duff McKagan calling you from uh, Milano, Italy. It's uh, Susan. Susan's here. Ciao. Ciao, Chris Jericho. Listen, uh, you know why you shouldn't brush your teeth with your left hand? Yeah, because a toothbrush works better. Thank you very much. Goodbye. All right, Duff and his wife, Susan, bring the laughs from Milan, Italy, as Duff does every single week for the last five years. Uh, Duff and his wife are touring uh, with Guns N' Roses in Europe right now after they missed one show in Glasgow due to illness. I was there the same night as Duff was in Glasgow. And they're back and rocking. They actually added more dates to their upcoming tour of Japan. GunsNRoses.com has all the information and all the ticket info, all the dates, everything else you need to know, as does FozzyRock.com. have all the information about our next tour, the Save the World Tour, firing up again September 8th in Columbus, Ohio. We're even headed to Canada for a few shows. FozzyRock.com has all the dates and ticket information, along with details on our legendary VIP meet and greets. We're also headed back to Europe in November we start in Manchester on November 4th, and we hit Birmingham, Nottingham, Dublin, Belfast, Swansea, Bournemouth, Bristol, Glasgow, London, before we take the show down under to New Zealand and Australia, kicking things off in Auckland November 28th, and hitting Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide. Come rock with us this fall, FozzyRock.com, for all information on ticket and VIP meet and greets. You don't want to miss it, and you don't want to miss today's show, legendary producer-engineer Alan Parsons, who got his start at Abbey Road Studios working for the Beatles He's the guy in the orange shirt, black tie, and striped jacket in the rooftop footage from Get Back. He was there. He tells us all about it, what he did, what it was like to see that famous, monumental, legendary performance live, and what he thinks about Peter Jackson's eight-hour documentary, Get Back. Uh, Alan also talks about meeting the Beatles for the first time, what it was like to be in the studio with them, Sir Paul, uh, what it was like to work with McCartney, and, of course, being with George Martin and longtime Beatles engineer Jeff Emmerich. He also shares some great stories about working on Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd's classic album, seminal record. He's the guy who came up with the clock sounds on time, all the cool change effects on money, and wait till you hear what they had to do back then to get those sounds. Alan also talks about his own band, the Alan Parsons Project, 
as uh, made famous by Dr. Evil, which we'll also talk about as well from uh, Austin Powers, uh, <laughs> what it was like to be called out in the franchise. We'll also hear about Alan's brand new solo record from the New World, which features guest appearances from Tommy Shaw of Styx, guitar player Joe Bonamassa, and David Pack from Ambrosia. Album actually came out today. Get it wherever you buy or stream music and order one of the limited edition colored vinyl copies at alanparsons.com. Here we go. Alan Parsons of the Alan Parsons Project. Right here, right now, on Talk is Jericho. Here with uh, Alan Parsons, legendary Alan Parsons. So much history, so much to talk about. But you mentioned earlier that you just had some surgery. I was reading about it. Is that from years of touring <laughs> and holding guitars? <laughs> no, I think it, 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 it's the culmination of uh, not looking after myself for a number of years. No, it's, it's, it's a spinal problem. I've... I've had back trouble for many years, and uh, the doctor I went to see said it's you know it's time we fix this. So he gotcha. put me under the knife for four hours, <laughs> so. and here we are. But that that is something that people don't realize too. Like when you're on the road and touring, a touring musician and touring, the travel and the wear and tear it does get to you after a while. Most people don't realize just how much of a stress it is on your body and your mind to to be touring, like you mentioned, for so many years. It does take its toll. Uh, from being said by uh, several musicians, I think uh, the playing the gig is free. It's the travel that the promoter pays. <laughs> yeah, the, the the 22 hours on the road is what you get paid for. The two hours is, is the good part, right? Right. Because the interesting thing for, for me is that you didn't tour ever with the Alan Parsons Project when you guys were in your heyday. Uh, you just started touring after. Why didn't you ever do some touring you know, I remember Eye in the Sky when it was really popular and those records, you just, you never went on the road. No, we uh, made the decision. I mean, you know, the, the, the Alan Parsons project was essentially two people. It was Eric Wilson and myself, mm -hmm. just for the record. Eric Dad's, uh, died, sadly, uh, in 2009. But uh, we, we made the decision, uh, no, we're just going to be a recording outfit. I mean, I had no particular aspirations towards being a rock star, you know, a stage rock star. Right. We just decided that we will we'll promote the albums by by going to the radio stations and uh, you know promoting, doing interviews and uh, and doing playbacks for the media and the press and stuff of, of new albums as they appeared, and it, it seemed to work well. I mean, we we managed to you know get into the upper reaches of the charts and uh, sure it worked fine. It was only much later um, in the mid '90s that uh, I felt the need because I'd made an album. Under my own name, not not just uh, not as Alan Parsons Project. We dropped the word project; it just became Alan Parsons. Mm. It seemed like a good idea at the time to uh, give the album that I'd just made every possible chance of success, and uh, that's what we did. We formed a band and we toured Europe. In the early years, I was very much a backseat passenger, guy, right? Just just strumming my guitar, and you know, so over the years, I just became more confident, and uh, believe it or not. There I am on stage right now doing doing lead vocals uh, and, and singing Eye in the Sky of all songs. <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting because like you mentioned, Alan, it was almost like you were a late bloomer as a recording artist because like you mentioned, for being behind the scenes and the engineering and the producing that you did, was it overall goal always to, to do your own stuff or did you just one day go, I want to do something else that rather than working other, on other people's music? I, th I think I always wanted to uh, keep my uh, production chops in check, as it were. But uh, no, I, uh, I I had no particular aspirations towards uh, being a concert or arena uh, act. 
it was all just about recording. And I, I've always had a studio. I've always, I've always wherever wherever I've lived, I've always had a studio to to work at. Sure. But it, it, it just seemed to make sense. That was a, an album called Try, Try Anything Once in the mid nineties, and then I carried on with those guys, the same guys, many of whom had appeared on the project albums. But Eric was ensconced in a a legal battle mm. with this uh, producer of a musical show that we worked on together. Gotcha. I just needed needed to earn money because my assets were frozen as a result of that. Ah, uh, the, the lovely music business, right? Oh, God. <laughs> Was it a surprise when Austin Powers came out and they made the Alan Parsons Project uh, joke in the movie? Was that a surprise to you? Did you know it was coming? I had no idea at all. No, uh, <laughs> but uh, arguably, I've got more exposure through the uh, giant laser than I have through anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that introduced you to a whole new generation of fans, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's slightly upsetting that, that uh, Mike Myers or, or the music editor or somebody didn't contact me because, you know, I would have gladly made a musical contribution to the soundtrack album. Or, mm-hmm. In fact, we, uh, we'd actually borrowed some lines from uh, Dr. Evil to, to do a sort of dance mix of, of, of one of the uh, album tracks on, on, a, on a later album called The Time Machine. So we heard this sort of tuneful, melodic, trancey kind of rhythm and then you, over the top you would hear Dr. Evil saying it was invented by the Cambridge physicist Dr. Parsons therefore we shall call it the Alan Parsons project <laughs> did I get the right I got, the public can't see me I'm, maybe I've got the wrong little finger you've got the finger up to your mouth the very Dr. Evil-esque yes <laughs> well let's talk about, about I, I want to talk obviously about some of your most famous engineering and, and producing that you've done but let's talk about your new record uh, from the new world, was this something that you had recorded during lockdown? Yes, yes, we did. It was uh, very challenging to actually get uh, the band together. I, I didn't want to do it piecemeal. I didn't want to do it, do the drum track and then add the bass and you know, and then add this. And that. Right. I'm totally used to working with a complete band in the studio. I heard uh, Nancy Wilson doing on your show. Yeah, t- uh, telling you that she. She did it. That's it. Exactly that. She did. She did. She'd do her guitar part and then send it away and to the bass player and to the drummer and then send it back. So yeah. I'm really not into that. I much prefer the live collaboration between between musicians. Having said that, we did do some vocals and uh, guitar solos at a distance, but we did it. We did it live. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't have them send files back the, the next day. So we use a an internet program called Source Connect, which. Uh, Allows you to essentially be there. I mean, uh, you, really, they, they get the track and they 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 play the, the track at their end and they do their bits and then I say, well, that was great. Except why don't you do? Why don't you come in two bars earlier or whatever? So it's exactly like being there, except that they don't wander into the control room after they've done their thing and and listen back. <laughs> it's very it's, it works really well. That's cool because there's something that I noticed, especially if you're doing Zoom or, or Streamyard. There's always such a delay. So we can have a conversation, but if we tried to sing "Happy Birthday" right now, there would be a delay in the syncing. So what you're saying with this? What did you say it was called Source? Source Connect. It's called Source Connect. So you you didn't have that delay with you didn't have that problem. Well, it, it really doesn't matter because everything that they do at their end gets delayed by the same amount before I hear it. Oh, I see. Yeah, I got you. So there's there's no sync problem at all. There's a bit of a, a problem on on the communication. You know, when you when you're talking. It's going up to the right. satellite and down again, so there's like a, a two-second gap between 
me saying something and them hearing it. It's, it's like a news report on CNN. You know, you have to wait, sure. wait for the person to hear uh, what's been said and then and then contribute what he, he or she is. When you uh, when you put together the record, you have a lot of kind of guests on the album, guest musicians. Are these guys that you've worked with in the past or just guys that you went, hey, I'd like to do something with Tommy Shaw or whatever it may be? Um, I hadn't worked with Tommy Shaw, uh, but I had heard uh, through the grapevine that he was a big fan. So it wasn't a problem to get him to, <laughs> to do us. So he, he did a song called Ouroboros, which is already out as a single. Mm -hmm. the, the album itself comes out uh, July 15th. But uh, yeah, Tommy Shaw's and the the other single that's been released is with David Pack on the lead vocal. David Pack is the uh, ex-lead singer of Ambrosia. Ambrosia. That I did the first, uh, I worked on their first two albums. I mixed their first and produced their second album. Then they started having number one hits and I wasn't around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the biggest part of me, that was their big hit, right? Yes. One of them at least, yeah. They, failed to have any success in the UK because Ambrosia is a brand of canned rice pudding. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. <laughs> the, the name just didn't gel in the UK for some reason. Well, for that reason. I think it's something here at American Thanksgiving has some kind of uh, Ambrosia, which is jello and whipped cream and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a dessert uh, in both continents. Oh, it is. Oh, I, I didn't know that. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. So when you do a record and now, you know, in 2022, obviously as an artist, you always want to stay creative. Is it something that you want to go and play some of these songs at some point as well in the live setting? Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the COVID has, has literally stopped so many bands from performing for the, a two-year period. Right. And uh, we, we did manage to pull off a, a brief tour in January. And um, the sad thing is I, I've just had uh, spinal surgery and I, I was all ready to do a European tour. But uh, I was in I was in agony. Oh. I could barely walk, so it was clear that I I couldn't uh, make that tour. So I'm I'm hopeful that I'll be good, you know, in a couple of months, and uh, I'll be able to get get back to it. But uh, for now, I'm fighting off uh, some pain and, and taking painkillers, and you know, just. But I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. You used to take painkillers in the '70s and '80s for fun. Now you have to take them for actual <laughs> pain. <laughs> I'm pleased to say I'm actually off the painkillers now, except uh, if I wake up at night, I might. But, right. But I'm, I'm good during the day these days. It's a huge disappointment that I haven't, haven't been able to do this European tour. It had some really nice shows in Holland, some festivals in Spain and France, and the Montreux Jazz Festival, which I, I would have so loved to have done that. Oh. I hope they have me back some, on some other occasion next year, hopefully. Is, is that kind of your biggest uh, area is in Europe where you have the most uh, fan base? Not, not so much Switzerland in particular, but Germany is a very big market. Gotcha. And Switzerland is on the borders of uh, Germany, uh, Austria, and Italy, of course. So, yeah, we do well in all those places. Holland's a big place, very, very big place for us. It's so amazing to me um, 
talking about your your career and, and about your new record now and talk about the stuff that you've done in the past and obviously the the thing that really blew my mind was the get back movie peter jackson's movie and up on the rooftop and there's a young alan parsons up there running cables and all that sort of thing uh first and foremost did you have any idea that that footage existed because it blew my mind that we had to wait 50 years to find out that this actually was even a thing well, it, it's true. I, I, I didn't know it existed because uh, I basically assumed that uh, the original Let It Be movie, you know, Michael Lindsay Hollick's movie, if, if there had been a, you know, a little snippet of me, I, you know, he might have included it, he might not have included it. Mm-hmm. But uh, Peter Jackson was gracious enough to, to call me uh, about six months before the film came out and uh, met me at, a, at his Beverly Hills hotel room and uh, played me some clips. And there I was, large as life. Uh, it was a great feeling. He was not a, he not only put some clips in his movie, but he actually put put me on the screen with a credit saying Alan Parsons tape operation. And that was a real feel good for me. It was great. Before we talk about the, the rooftop and that, how did you end up starting to work with the Beatles in the first place? I'd been working at Abbey Road Studios uh, for the previous uh, three months or so, at the age of nineteen, and. Uh, I turned 20 in December, which made me 20 years old when I was sent down by Abbey Road to assist at uh, their, their studio at uh, the Apple Building in, in, in Central London. I was still fairly green, just, you know, just a newly trained uh, tape operator. Mm-hmm. But uh, there I was, all four Beatles, George Martin, all the wives and girlfriends. And it was... Uh, an extraordinary experience, it really was. And I, I was there on the roof for the entire uh, concert, not doing anything particularly useful. I was just, just there watching. <laughs> well, let's talk quickly about Abbey Road, because w- what it was like back then when you worked for the studio, it was almost like you were a contracted employee of that studio, and they would send you to do whatever needed to be done for the recording, whoever was in there, whatever band was in there, you would just go and whatever assignment they gave you. Is that kind of how it worked? Well, I was an employee. Abbey Road was an EMI entity. Beatles were on Abbey on on EMI. <laughs> they, if they if the Beatles wanted some help from uh, Abbey Road, they got it. Right. I was the one sent down to help. Did you have like a impressive potential, or why did they send such a young guy down to work with the biggest band in the world potentially? <laughs> I, I can't answer that, but I, I'm. So so glad they chose me because it was it was a, an incredible experience. It really was. There, there were a couple of other guys that uh, filled in either side of me, but uh, I was there for the uh, few days leading up to the rooftop and the, the rooftop itself. So, well, you also engineered Abbey Road, correct? No, I was still the tape up. Okay, Abbey, Abbey Road was the following summer of '69, and uh, I was still still very much uh, very green, very very new to the whole thing, but. I was working with the best. I was working with George Martin, with Jeff Emmerich, uh, all the other great engineers uh, working at the studio at the time. But it was, yeah, it was probably another, at least another year and a half before I was let loose on the board, actually engineering. What was George Martin like as a producer? I mean, obviously as a genius, but from your your experiences with him. I was always incredibly comfortable with him. He was always respectful of uh, Abbey Road staff. He was respectful of the artists he worked with. I think the artists were equally respectful of him because he he spoke their language. He, he you know, and uh, if he had an idea for uh, something on one of the songs on Abbey Road, he you know they would listen and they would try it. And mm. uh, more often than not, he was he, you know his idea was a good one. 
So he he really was, I, I believe, the, the the fifth Beatle, as he's referred to mm-hmm. as. I think he was the ultimate diplomat. In, in some ways, I I like to consider that I model myself my you know, my production values the way I work on on him. Mm-hmm. I, I think he was the 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 ideal producer. Well, and that's a great point. As a producer, you have to be a diplomat, right? When you're dealing with artists, and you want to make sure that you guide them in the right direction but you also can't be too stiff because then you might insult them so there very much is a lot of diplomacy there absolutely there's the famous line uh, of george harrison saying i don't like your tie <laughs> yeah. No, but, yeah, let it go over his head <laughs> did you have uh, any a lot of personal experiences with with the beatles with the guys really that came later i mean on uh, the abbey road sessions i was in a in a connected room with a, with a glass a glass partition uh, there wasn't much uh, actual verbal contact with the band, mm. m- more with uh, Jeff, the engineer. But um, later on, uh, you know, I got to, uh, as I progressed and uh, got uh, more established as, as, as an engineer as opposed to a tape-op, I started to work with Paul. I did the Red Rose Speedway album, a couple of singles. Mm. It started with me uh, engineering a, a couple of mixes on uh, Wings Wildlife. Which he liked, and he uh, he took me on. He, he took the risk, and uh, hopefully, I delivered. <laughs> well, how how do you work with Paul McCartney at that point? I mean, are you suggesting to him? Is he is he putting a lot of trust in in your thoughts? As an engineer, you're you're meant to just keep your mouth shut. You're meant to do do what you're told. Get a great sound. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, uh, use the best mics. Get the best uh, best possible balance, and so on. But uh, Paul, Paul was pretty demanding. He would not be very good at uh, describing what he's looking for. He would just say, make it sound better. Let's get a better guitar <laughs> sound. Let's get a better drum sound. Let's get a better vocal sound. And that was the means towards uh, experimenting, you know, which, which often produced great results. You know, if you tried something you never tried before in order to make that sound better, then I would try it. You know? How was that back in the late 60s, early 70s, as far as the equipment, the recording equipment, setting up the mics, even you know how many how many tracks were you able to record at once? I'm pretty sure we had got to the 16 track by the time I was uh, working. Right. Before. Okay. But uh, Abbey Road was eight track. Let it be was eight track. Incredible, really. How could they do all that on eight tracks? Just keep doubling it and just splitting it? Well, you, you had to you had to make more choices. You'd have you'd have to put all the drums on a track, or maybe bass make bass and drums on a track. Then a guitar on a track, and then the other guitar on a track, vocal on a track. So yeah, you just had to be much more committal than you did later on. You could, I mean, by, by the time sixteen track came along, you could easily record drums on four tracks, mm-hmm. get drums separate, the snare drum separate, everything else uh, as a, a stereo uh, left and right pair. But then, uh, then we got to forty eight track, and uh, now it's completely unlimited, which is yeah, in some cases a nightmare because. Uh, People will not commit to uh, making the choices that they need to make. And uh, mixing takes forever. <laughs> yeah. Because it becomes a process of choosing different performances, different vocal uh, takes, different different drum takes, different bass takes. You know, it's, it's a nightmare. But I, I like to think that I'm reasonably decisive and I can uh, always uh, just come straight to a, to a song that we've been working on and, and know that it's going to be the definitive version that people will eventually hear. Well, I would assume that your your 
you're fairly adept at with all the new technology and, and the fact you were making records for 50 years, just how much things have advanced. But like you said, the more technology there is, sometimes that makes things even uh, not as good. I mean, there's there's less humanity in music now because of, of technology that you can use to sweeten things and tighten things, et cetera, et cetera. It can be a plus, it can be a minus. Everybody, everybody's very uh, in tune with timing, tuning. Mm -hmm. There are things in in the past that today just sound horrific. You go, oh my God, how could they ever have let that go on that record? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, you can make it perfect, uh, perhaps at the expense of uh, the feel being diminished in some way. Uh, but I, I love it. I love the the cut and paste aspect of modern recording. Mm -hmm. If you're doing backing vocals, for example, who's and ours, or harmonies on a chorus, you only have to do it once, then you can paste it into the next chorus. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you spend a lot of time, believe it or not, it, well, we did spend a lot of time in analog days, winding the tape to a certain point, you know, just winding it from the, mm. winding it from the end to the beginning was, you know, a good sort of 25, 30 second operation. Yeah. Whereas in the modern world, on the digital audio workstations, as we call them, you can go to any place immediately just by touching a button. Right, right, right. Not only that, but then if you wanted to go to another song in the old days, you'd have to wind the tape off, take it off the machine, put it in the box, put it on the shelf, take the next tape out, put it back on. It's, it's, it's all very, uh, very time-consuming. And if you had to make any edits, you'd have to do it with the razor blade and tape it and cut it as well, right? Yep, yeah. All editing was 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 real. I mean, you literally cut the tape. It, it's almost uncanny that we managed those days with the, with the available technology. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Let's talk about, about the rooftop. What do you remember about that day? And obviously, probably didn't realize it would be one of the greatest, most talked about concerts of all time. And there was probably only 15 people on that rooftop and you were one of them. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I've only got two still photographs to prove that I was there. <laughs> now I've got uh, the, the Peter Jackson movie, of course, that shows one very brief moment where I'm adjusting something on, on the drums uh, by Ringo's kit. It was an extraordinary day. Uh, it, was, it was very last minute. We, we ran cables up the uh, stairwell from the uh, basement studio up to the roof, mm. took all the mic stands up, it was a cold, blustery morning, and uh, Glenn Johns, who was the engineer, he sent me out to buy some uh, ladies' pantyhose to put over the mics to stop the wind uh, getting in there. Oh, wow. But a very strange reaction uh, from the shopkeepers, you know, me buying <laughs> ladies' uh, leggings, and uh, I think they thought I was a, a cross-dresser or I was going to go <laughs> right. put them over my head and, yeah. and, and rob a bank, you know. Rob somebody, yeah. <laughs> So that was what you, you had. And so you mentioned that you were just told about this earlier in the day. It was a, like a last minute thing. Hey, you got to go up on the roof. It was the day before that it was decided to do it. Oh, wow. So uh, I think that that afternoon and evening, we ran up the cables. Miraculously, everything everything worked. Everything uh, 
everything functioned and up they came and they started playing and then the rest is history. But I, th I think Peter Jackson's movie captures the, uh, the essence of what the rooftop session was much better than the original Let It Be movie. Oh, absolutely. It's amazing to me too that you couldn't see them you know, from the street. You just, you couldn't see anybody. Right. You just heard them. It, it is extraordinary that, isn't it? Um, there were, there were, you know, a few uh, neighboring rooftops that could, that uh, were up there uh, looking from across the street. But uh, yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> and I love the interviews from the street, you know. Yeah. Who is it? Is it the Beatles? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it woke me up for my nap, but I'm not happy. <laughs> that was my favorite. <laughs> So what was your job during the gig? Well, during the gig, I, I, I was just there to make sure nothing uh, broke down, mm. especially in the, in the 60s. You know, equipment was much less reliable. The power supplies went down for microphones and things like that. So I was just there to, to make sure that everything remained, uh, remained working. If, if uh, I would have been summoned to uh, change a mic or change a, a power supply if, if there need be. But there I was. I, was, uh, I, I made the mistake of plonking myself behind one of the movie cameras. If you want to be in a film, you should not be behind the camera. You should be in front of it. <laughs> See, so. lessons that you learned as a show business veteran now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> two, little, two little shots. I, I was on uh, stage right, closest to, to Paul, Paul's side of the stage. Mm. In the original book, you can see uh, a couple of shots of me wearing a, an orange shirt, a, a black tie, and a, and a striped jacket. Not looking in the least important at all. <laughs> and how long was the set i don't know it, was, it felt like about an hour all told they yeah. played some of the songs twice mm -hmm. i'm not sure if that came through in the uh in the latest movie that they played some of the songs twice probably not they probably just chose the best best performance of each one well yeah because they actually used some of those on let it be itself on the record itself right yes exactly indeed I actually felt that uh, there was a better get back than the one they actually used. Oh, yeah. Just, just for my own taste. Were you a Beatles fan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Biggest, huge, huge, huge fan. So that must have been, were you kind of a little bit nervous around them for being such a big fan? The first day, I mean, I literally pushed the control room door open and there they all were Glenn Johns, um, George Martin, Linda Eastman, Yoko Ono. Hello, I'm Alan. I've come to help. So, uh, they said, well, there's the tape machine. We'll be right with you. So they were, they were gracious. No. <laughs> was it cool watching that close? I mean, just the harmonies that they had and the chemistry that they had? Yes, it was great. I was just in heaven, you know, there, you know, three months into my first job after leaving school, effectively, or soon after leaving school. I'm working with the greatest rock band of all time. How, how bad can that be? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and like I said, being a part of one of the greatest gigs in rock and roll history. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. You're also part of one of the greatest albums, another one of the greatest albums in rock and roll history, talking, of course, about Dark Side of the Moon, working with Pink Floyd, which is another huge, ridiculous band that's very much into Sonics and the, and the 
prog element, which I think you're very adept at as well. How did that all come about? I'd been working with them a couple of times as, as a tape op uh, on Amagama. Actually ended up mixing the uh, the previous album to Dark Side of the Moon, Atom Heart Mother, because uh, Peter Bowen, who'd done the uh, most of the engineering for that, that album, was not available. And rather than bring in somebody who didn't know the music, they, they gave me a chance. Right. You know the music, you know the console. And that was, you know, pretty much my first uh, major major gig as, as a as an engineer to, to mix and presumably I did a good enough job for them to ask for me in the first uh, dark side sessions. So, I mean, obviously you got a different group of guys, but still complete geniuses with, you know, Roger Waters and David Gilmore and you can never answer this properly, but did, when you're making dark side of the moon, do you realize just how, how massive it's going to be? Do you, are you thinking this is going to hit or is it just another record? Was it special? I think everybody, Everybody in the band, everybody associated with the with the record felt it was, without doubt, their best work to date. Mm. I don't think anybody expected to be talking about it 45 years later or whatever it is. Yeah. Right, right. One of the biggest selling records of all time in the charts for 20 years and all that other stuff. Actually, it's, it's 50 years now, isn't it? Is it 50? <laughs> Probably, right? 72 to 22. Yeah. What was it like working with with David and Roger? I mean, but we don't really know a lot about them. Obviously, there's a million stories about John Lennon and Paul McCartney and the Beatles, but they're a little bit more mysterious. The guys in Pink Floyd, as far as what they were like as as artists. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's of course lamentable that uh, David and Roger don't see eye to eye. Yeah, but everything was fine back then. Everybody was, you know, relaxed, uh, got on well, and actually enjoyed the process of recording. I think. I was uh, pleased to be a part of it. And I, th- I think we made a good team. It, it's, it's actually uh, a shame that uh, I only did the one record with them eff- effectively as as the engineer from start to finish. Because I, I think we were a good team. I, I could have done some more work with them. And uh, they actually offered me a job after that side of the moon. They, they said, come and work for us full time. And I politely declined because my, my production career had already started taking off. I was getting getting hits as a producer. Although it's a shame that we uh, only did the, the one record. I made the right decision. I made the right decision. Dark Side 2 as well, we're talking about technology. There's a lot of sound effects on there, but I'm assuming you're not just pulling up samples like you would now. Like we're talking about, like let's say, the cash register on money, for example. Is that something you guys had to actually do live? Abbey Road had a, a steel cabinet full of uh, tapes of, of sound effects. I'm pretty sure the, the cash register was on one of those sound effects tapes. The other sounds on that uh, intro loop for money were were self-generated. We, you know, we threw money in the air and we dropped uh, bags of money onto the wooden floor of uh, the studio. They're all fairly distinctive sounds. The only slightly odd sound is is actually a, a telephone exchange, which goes. It sounds right, but it doesn't really bear any relationship to money. <laughs> <laughs> the compilation of that loop was um, was incredibly uh, complex, uh, getting it to work correctly. Where did that idea come from? Because like you said, it is so unique of using this money as, as a melody almost. Well, yeah, it was, it was uh, the, the loop was used as what today we would call a click track. You right. Know, actually, actually played to the loop, that loop. Um, so it had to be dead on right timing wise. I think... If the album had been made today, that loop would have taken five minutes, literally. 
Yeah. But we, <laughs> but we, we had to literally take each sound, put it up, put it on a four track tape. We chose four track because we were doing quadraphonic sound at the time. So that the, each sound would wander around the room. That was the idea. And uh, we literally had to get get a ruler out and measure the exact length of tape so that it remained in tempo or in time. Oh wow! It, it, it took all day to get it right, and then we uh, made a, a tape loop, hanging the tape around uh, mic stands and anything available to hold a, a tape taut. <laughs> and, uh, transferred it to the twenty-four track master, and then then they played to it. That's how it uh, came together. I, I think the, the, you asked me about the original idea. Where did that come from? Roger had done a demo with a similar loop, but with completely different sounds and, and done very differently. Mm. We used that uh, for the record. We used it when we played live. Uh, I didn't uh, mention that I not only engineered the album, but uh, went out and uh, did gigs with them, playing the album for the first time to the, the American audience, which was good fun. What were you doing when you, you said you did gigs with them? Doing the sound or engineering? Yeah, the- doing the front of house, yeah. Mixing. Oh, really? Oh, wow. And uh, they had speakers behind us, at the side of us, as well as uh, in front of us. So it was an interesting uh, setup. Well, they were always so much into the full-on experience, sound, vision, the whole show. Oh, it was always visual as well. They, they, were, they were masters of... Uh, getting the right uh, lighting designer and special effects guys to make the show special. So how do you how do you do front of house for Pink Floyd? That's interesting to me. It's the same as anybody really, but yeah. they did have this unusual speaker configuration. We we could make sound literally go around the building. It didn't work for anything rhythmic because the the laws of physics don't allow anything rhythmic to be uh, at the front of the house as well as in the back of the house. So just spacey Spacey sections, you know, the, the intro section, for example, took full advantage of the of the speakers being uh, in the four corners. Was it a similar idea when you had the clocks for time? Similar thinking, yes. I mean, we, we knew that uh, the clocks had to be recorded on, on four different tracks so that uh, in quadraphonic they would appear from all directions. That was, that was one of my main contributions to the record, actually. Uh, hmm. I had recorded those clocks... Uh, for a sound effects record in a local uh, antique clock shop. And I just got this shopkeeper to, to stop them all. And I recorded each clock separately ticking and each clock separately chiming. And then we went back to the studio and uh, made them all chime together. That became the intro to the track. So that was my, that was my, my big contribution. It's amazing though. Like you said, just how you had to do everything, you know, literally, you really had to get the clock and record the clock and get it all measured up. It's it's amazing how that's just how things were done. You had to do it that way. Yeah, it was it was fairly primitive technology. It has to be said. I mean, uh, the word digital delay didn't exist. I mean, it, there's an, enough electronics in a wristwatch or a pedal these days, <laughs> right? To to do almost anything you would want. But back then, the only devices were mechanical devices. So. If you wanted a, a different kind of room sound, you would use a different echo chamber, or you would dampen down a, a room elsewhere, or use a tape machine. Sometimes we would have literally seven or eight tape machines running for a mix, just to get all the various delays and stuff happening. Us and them was a big uh, challenge to get those vocal delays happening. 
Oh. Us, us, us. That, that again, in quadraphonic, walks around the room. It goes uh, from front right to front right. That was quite a challenge. So we had to use an eight-track machine uh, running at half speed, using two tracks for every delay, because that, that was considered to be a pretty long delay back then. Mm. Piece of cake now. You just plug in a box and set the delay time, and it's done. But back then, just primitive stuff, really difficult to achieve. The, the kind of things which are... Did you ever hear the uh, the story about if you play Dark Side of the Moon with The Wizard of Oz that it syncs perfectly? Of course I have. <laughs> and of course you did that on purpose, right? <laughs> My standard answer, it, it was it was chitty chitty bang bang. It wasn't. So it was <laughs> I, I was like, how, how did somebody ever figure that out? Some Somebody was smoking some weed. Somebody with much too much time on their hands. <laughs> That's right. Exactly, exactly. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Alan, as, as we start to wind down here, I want to ask you a few questions about your production career because we've been talking a lot about you as an engineer. Explain the difference for people that might not understand what a producer really does. Engineering is more like you said, Paul McCartney's telling you, make it sound better. Let's get this sequencing done. As far as producing goes, though, what were kind of your techniques and, and what were some of the biggest bands that you worked with from a production standpoint? Well, um, the role of the producer has actually become uh, much more technical in recent years. I mean, producers basically have to understand uh, digital uh, workstations, you know, have a, a feel for how, you know, whatever uh, programs being used, Pro Tools or whatever. But still, the the underlying job, as far as they're concerned, is, is to deal with the artist, get the best result from the artist and... Uh, Leave the sound aspects to the engineer, or, or if you ha- if the producer has certain ideas about how something should sound, he would convey that to the to the engineer, and he would act upon any instructions that the producer might give him. But, but uh, I, I think I said earlier the the, produ- the engineer's job is to keep his mouth shut and make it sound great, right? <laughs> unless he's told otherwise. I I was one of the first producer engineers to had always until probably the, the early to mid 70s it had always been two jobs hmm. and there were there weren't many people uh, that w- literally did both jobs i was very lucky i i, I managed to uh, land uh, some some good artists uh, one of my first hits was with pilot a song called magic oh oh, oh it's magic it's magic <laughs> that, that's currently being used for a, a commercial for some uh, a drug called Ozempic. Yeah, here that we have it in the states. That commercial. Yeah, it, it is. It is a drug, right? It's not a soap or a. I don't, I don't do it. It's one of those commercials where you don't know exactly what the drug is, but they just have a bunch of people running around and having a great time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So I did well with uh, with with them. Uh, there was a, a British singer called John Miles that I did really well. He, he didn't make much of an impact in, in the states, but. Uh, and uh, there was Cockney Rebel again, much more success in Europe than in America. In fact, I had two consecutive number ones with Pilot and Cockney Rebel, which was quite a thrill for me. Uh, there was yeah 
a lot of champagne drunk the night uh, <laughs> like one one record record took over from the other and then there was a, al stewart of course uh, the, i mean he became possibly the, the best known artist i'd produced over the years i did three three albums with him year of the cat uh, time passages and the first album uh, modern times yeah like i said he had he had a big run in the states for sure as well so i guess what i wanted to ask you then is what's what do you think is your favorite record that you've ever that you've ever worked on out of all of them? Every every record has has great moments. I think uh, I was proudest of the first Alan Parsons project album, Tells the Mystery and Imagination. Mm-hmm. I'd always enjoyed Edgar Allan Poe, and uh, you know, a really thrilling thing to convert his uh, some of his great works to music. And uh, Eric was the same. He he loved Poe, and uh, I think he did some great lyrics on the songs that uh, conveyed the atmosphere of the songs. So I, I felt most proud of that, I think, of all of them. First of a, a new breed of album, you know, producers, producer, engineer, artist. So I, I wore three hats for, for that. So when you heal up and you do go back out on the road again, when you do your set list now, is it a kind of a whole montage and collage of your whole career? It's really a, only the uh, Alan Parsons and Alan Parsons Project Music. I don't do any, of course, any Beatles or Pink Floyd or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but it's not as if I haven't been asked. Though. I've been asked on several occasions to do such such thing. But um, I recognise that our audience wants to hear the hits. If we didn't play Eye in the Sky, they would probably write angry letters and ask for their money back. <laughs> if if anybody actually writes letters anymore, <laughs> they would just tweet about it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, they, they want to hear the hits. Uh, and But, you know, we've got a record to promote, so uh, we will be doing a couple of songs from uh, The New World when we get together for rehearsal sometime. I'm hoping to be uh, well enough uh, to do some shows at the end of the year, October, November sometime. Well, last few things, I, I saw that you had Joe Bonamassa on the new record as well. What a great player. One, one, of, the, one of the all-time greats already. Oh, he was wonderful. And he... Uh, I met him through uh, my publicity people who had asked him to interview me to promote a, a live album. Uh, that, that's one of the things we've been doing since the pandemic. We've been putting out live albums. Right. One from Holland, uh, which is called The Never Ending Show. Another from Tel Aviv, Israel, mm-hmm. with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra. That, that's effectively what I've been doing in, in the pandemic. So Joe, Joe interviewed me about the, about those two albums. Gotcha. And uh, and at the end of the interview, I said, uh, Joe, can I ask you? You've you've been ask, asking me questions. Can I ask you one? And he said, Yes, yeah, sure. What is it? I said, Will you play on my new album? <laughs> Put him on the spot. <laughs> he did a, a great job. We, we we did it again at a distance, and we we, we were face to face in Nashville for that event. But uh, the solo that we that he did uh, for one of the songs on from the new world was was done. Me and Santa Barbara in my studio, and him in uh, in Nashville. Uh, last question for you: What's your favorite track on fr- from the New World? And obviously, they're all your children. But is the one that stands out for you that, that you're excited to play live, maybe, or that you like the best? The the title from the New World comes from the celebrated Czech composer Antonin Dvořák. Mm. His most famous uh, symphony is called "From the New World." I've always wanted to record that symphony in a, in a sort of rock format. We failed to do uh, the, the entire album, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm very keen on 
one one song which was based on the slow movement, which is called Going Home. Hmm. I was somewhat pleased that uh, I did a, a fairly decent vocal on it. So uh, that's uh, one of the favorite tracks. Uh, I'm also very keen on uh, a song called I Won't Be Led Astray, which is the David Pack song. Well, it's been great talking to you, Alan. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're feeling better and hopefully you'll be back on the road soon. And once again, man, you, the Dr. Evil quote, you got your <laughs> finger up there. It's great. <laughs> All right. Nice talking to you.